0: Father, well, may that be the the delight of our heart. God, if ever I love Thee, my Jesus tis now. This speaks of a, a continuing flow up of love to You. And we love You, God, because You first loved us and You were gracious to us and You forgave us our sin, cleansed us from all our transgressions, have wiped us clean and made us pure as snow and as white as wool. Though our sin, O Lord, was deep red as scarlet, God, by Your grace, You have have washed us and sanctified us through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I would pray, Lord, as we open Your Word, God, give us a, a greater heart, and a greater affection for You, God, because of all that You have done for us. God, I, I pray, God, even that You would open our eyes to the, the full extent of the glories of Calvary. Um, help us to see what is difficult for us to see. Help us to believe what is difficult for us to believe. And so open our, our cloudy eyes. God, may we see You in clarity here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. So we've been working through the, the Gospel of Mark section by section. I've um, been trying to move through this Gospel quickly. We started in January um, and now we've come to Mark chapter 8. I want to read our text for us. First of all, beginning in verse 22 and through verse 33 is is our text here this morning. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus, and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. And then he again laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. We've come now to the pinnacle of Mark's Gospel. For eight chapters, Mark has been describing for us who Jesus is. He's been describing His teachings, His miracles, His compassion, His message. Repent, for the Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. He's speaking about how the Kingdom of God is here and now it's time for repentance. And for eight chapters, Mark has been describing who He is and what He does. And now in verse 29, Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ. And with that confession in verse 29, it's as if it is a, it's a watershed. It is the continental divide of, a, of Mark starting out. And now that you know who He is, now He's going to focus His attention upon what He will do. In fact, that's the point of verse 31. And He began to teach them. That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This is what He's going to start to do. He's he's, he's beginning to teach them about His passion and the crucifixion and the resurrection. This, by the way, is the first time He mentions His death. It's a horrible death. Rejected by the religious leaders. Killed. We know He's crucified. Most painful of deaths. And yet, it is a hopeful death because He's going to rise again from the dead. It gives us all hope as well. This is a unique passage in the Gospel of Mark. It's the, the hinge, really, that ties the whole Gospel together. If you're looking for a theme of the Gospel of Mark, it is this. Jesus is the servant who saves. He, he's the servant in the first half showing who He is. He just, and He saves in the second half dying for our sins, being raised from the dead. But this is also a unique passage because this miracle mentioned here in verses 22 through 26 is is mentioned only here in the Gospel of Mark. None of the other Gospel writers have it. Not Matthew, not Luke, not John. Only Mark. And even perhaps more significantly is that this Gospel is the only one, this miracle is the only one that Jesus does in two stages. At first, He gives the man sight and then He gives the man understanding for what he sees. He sees. And as, I, as I've thought about this, I've actually thought about this for a while, I think the best words to understand and describe this are, are two, sensation and perception. Uh, the first, these words came to my mind when um, we were traveling home or out on vacation last summer, we were driving to California, and Carissa was studying for a CLEP test, a college-level EP, I don't know. And EP? AP? CLAP? It's a CLEP test, right? College level, who knows. Anyway, it's a test that she can take and she gets a college course credit for it. And even though she's never had a a course in developmental psychology, um, she just read this book about developmental psychology and used her intuition and passed this test and saved us a lot of money and gave her some credit. And so she's studying this on the way home. And uh, at one point, we're talking about the the, the process, the developmental process a child goes through in dealing with the world. I mean, think about a baby just born into the world. We know lots about that at Rock Valley Bible Church, right? And uh, a baby, first of all, you know, comes out of the womb, for the first time sees light, opens eyes, and doesn't know, and just sees all this light just bombarded with all these electromagnetic electromagnetic waves, doesn't even know how to focus. You know, that's about how exciting it is, parents, when you start putting your finger and your, your child starts tracking with you. That's a learned behavior. At first, just the light comes in um, to, the, to the little brain. And on top of light, there's all these other things. There's objects around him that he begins to interpret. He begins to follow the, the tracking figure. There's sounds that he hears, the, the door slam, the uh, alarm clock, the mom and dad talking. And, and eventually, as his, his brain starts going, he starts figuring out what tastes good and what tastes bad. But in order to figure that out, you've got to put everything in your mouth first, right? Right? And uh, soon that is, that is taught. And psychologists describe this as a move from sensation to perception. Sensation meaning just the raw form of stimulus that comes into our, our senses, our, our sight and touch and taste and sound and smell. And perception is the way, though, that we take all of those um, things that we receive into our brain and how we interpret them and understand them. And on vacation drive, I remember thinking about these two words and I thought about this text. I thought about, you know what, that describes this exactly. This, this man who was blind, we see Jesus performing two miracles. First, that of sensation, being able to see. And then that is of perception, being able to discern. That's the title of my message this morning. Sensation and perception. We start with a sensation miracle. Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. The story starts off with some familiar things. a geographical reference to Bethsaida. That's along the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee, just on the eastern side of the Jordan River as it comes down from Mount Hermon. So it's still within the northern region of Galilee where he was ministering to. And then we see another common feature, how people are bringing the sick to Jesus to heal. That happened in chapter 7 with a deaf man. when They, they brought him, chapter 7, verse 32, and they, they brought this deaf man to Jesus to heal. That came about in chapter 2, verse 3, when, when this paralytic was let down through the roof by his friends bringing him down. It, it often was the case that the healthy ones were bringing the sick to Jesus to heal. It's the case here. It's being brought to Jesus. And their request was familiar. They just wanted Jesus to touch the blind man. And um, Jesus often touched those who he healed. He touched the deaf man. Chapter 7, verse 32. That's what they, they wanted him to do. And, and they'd heard enough about Jesus and how he operates that all you got to do is touch him and he will be healed. Remember the woman who was bleeding for 12 years? She said, If I just touch the fringe of his garment, I'll be healed. In fact, in chapter 6, verse 56, we read, Whenever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces, imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were, were being cured. Just the, the touch of Jesus, the healing power of Jesus that flowed from him. And so, those who brought this blind man before Jesus, wanted to, him to touch him, and they believed that by touching him, The implication was that would give him his sight. And in verse 23, we see this miracle of sensation take place. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Just like the deaf man, Jesus took this man aside, away from the crowds, probably to just stay away from the embarrassment maybe of everybody looking on him. Um... People not quite knowing what's going to happen. They're all peering. But Jesus is off alone by this man. A one-on-one interaction just speaks of how tender Jesus is with people. He's one-on-one oftentimes. And like the deaf man, he spit. This says he spit into his eyes. The best we can tell, he may have brought him down here. The deaf man had no idea what was going on. He's not like he could brace himself. And Jesus probably spit right in it. And the kids, don't do that to your pastor. Okay, that would not be good. We have this little game that we play with the kids. Maybe you see me around. Um, we play this little game. Some of the kids can come up and noogie me, right? And they get one shot per day. And um, if they try, they get it. And if they don't, then they can't do the rest of the day. And I get one shot a day on all of them. And so, noogie's okay. Spit in the eye is not okay. All right? Caleb? Okay, no no spitting. Noogie's okay, but not, not spitting in the eye. But here was, he spits right in the, the blind man's eye. And then it says here even that he... He laid his hands on him. And we don't know if he laid his hands on his eyes or on his head, but somehow he just put his hands on him and he said, now, lifting up, do you see anything? At this point, we see this man, verse 24, he looked up and he said, and he probably looked up, maybe Jesus got his hand on him, you know, every time someone's going to touch your eyes, you're, you're probably going to look down. He looked up and he said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. I think he had sensation, but he didn't have perception. He saw people and they were, they were like trees, is what he said. Now, some think that Jesus only healed this man partially, like a half miracle here. And they had to complete the miracle later. I don't think so. I think this was a miracle in and of itself. And then I think Jesus did another miracle for him. In some ways, this man is like a newborn baby. He's got the sensation of light, but he's unable to interpret and understand what it means. He doesn't have this perception ability. When this man turned back by the, to the crowds, because remember, he was away from them, and he's probably referring to the crowds when he's talking about men, and they're just kind of walking around. He sees them like, like trees. He sees them with dangling things, right? like trees. But he sees them walking, and he knows that doesn't quite make sense. Now, that's not unusual. Oliver Sacks, some professor of neurology at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, wrote a book entitled An Anthropologist on Mars. And so he's a neuroscientist, uh, neurophysician, whatever, and he's studying just neurological uh, things with uh, people. And in this book, there are seven case histories of various people with with, uh, different neurological conditions. He doesn't just deal with them in the hospital. He goes out to them and meets them in the places, in the marketplaces where they are, in their home, to see how they deal with things. And one of these essays, of these seven, is entitled To See and Not See which is really in some regard the the whole purpose behind the first part of this, this parable here, right? Remember back in verse 17 and 18? Look back there. Jesus, aware that they were talking about not having bread, He says, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand? Have you a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And in some measure, the disciples had the same problem this man had. That they saw, but they didn't see. They heard, but they didn't hear. And this man could see. His eyes were able to take in the light. and sense things around them, but he could not see in the sense he couldn't perceive the things around him. And that was the problem of the disciples before the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus said, oh, if they go home hungry, they'll faint on the way. And they said, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy all these people? They, the voices said, Jesus, you can feed them. But their eyes were blind. They didn't see. And even after feeding the 4,000, 4, they were discussing the fact, they had no bread. They were in the boat. They didn't have any bread. They didn't realize Jesus can feed 4,000, but he can't feed 12 of us. That's Peter's problem, by the way, in the next section that Peter sees some reality but doesn't perceive it entirely. But we'll get to that in a few moments. Anyway, back to this essay by Professor Sachs entitled, To See or Not to See. He tells a tale of a a man named Virgil, a 50-year-old man who was born blind. He was blind from childhood. Okay, I don't know if you're sure he was born blind. But in 1991, he had a cataract removed and a new lens implanted in his eye. And I just want to pick up the story here from Creation Magazine. It's a great magazine. I'm not sure, Answers maybe is the name of this magazine now. It's a great, great magazine, but I'll just pick up the story. It's very interesting. He says, when the bandages were removed, Virgil could see. But he had no idea what he was seeing. Light, movement, and color were all mixed up and meaningless, and all were just a blur. His brain could make no sense of the images that his optic nerve was transmitting. Although he had eyesight, he was still mentally blind. A condition of uh, perceptual incapacity known medically as agnosia. Can't see. Ignorance. Virgil could read the third line of the standard Snellen eye chart, equivalent to a visual acuity of about 2100, However, he could not distinguish words, even though he could read Braille fluently, as well as raise or inscribe letters. He could easily read the inscribed letters on tombstones by touch. A cat was particularly puzzling, as he could see the parts clearly a paw and a, a nose and a tail, but the cat as a whole was only a blur. That's for human faces. At the zoo, Virgil found it difficult to identify animals, and so did so either by their motion or by a single feature like a kangaroo because it hopped around and a giraffe because of its height, a zebra because of its stripes, and a lion because of its roar. A few days after after his operation, Virgil said that the trees didn't look like anything on earth. But a month later, he finally put a tree together, realized that the trunk and leaves formed a complete unit. Now, people who have formerly been used to a world they assessed only by touch, hearing, taste, and smell tend to be baffled by appearance, which being optical has no correlation to other senses. People who have been totally blind from birth, congenital blindness, or early childhood have lived in a world of time alone, not time and space. This is very interesting. Thus, the step at the end of the porch is something which occurs for a blind man a short time after he leaves the doorway, rather than something he's aware of in space. Sachs quotes the autobiography of John Hole, a blind man who says that for the blind, people are there only when they speak. They come and go as if out of nothing. Sighted babies learn to master this as time goes by. That is, babies who can see. An achievement, it would be noted, which is beyond the capacity of even our largest supercomputers. People who become blind later in life have a built-up visual memory of the way things look and how they fit in space. However, for the newly sighted, those who receive sight. It's a huge learning task involving a radical change of both neurological and physiological functioning, a change in the perpetual habits and strategies of a lifetime, in short, in identity. And Sachs says that these sorts of difficulties are almost universal among the early blinded restored to sight. He mentions a patient who could not recognize individual faces a year after his eye operation, despite his then having perfectly normal elementary vision. From such case histories, it appears that when sight is suddenly restored, there is need for the development of some new pathways in the visual cortex of the brain. Thus, the story of the man, theta blind man who saw people as trees walking is not a poetic account. It is a clinical description. And like Virgil, this blind man could see, but he had the additional complication of agnosia. He could not make sense of what, he'd see, what he was seeing. Jesus, having given his eyesight, then heals his agnosia. In one miraculous instant, his brain was taught what the rest of us have learned from childhood. I think it helps to open up what's taken place here uh, in this miracle. It's that, first of all, he was given sensation, eyes, and then he did quickly. He was given perception, which is my second point, verses 25 and 26. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes. And he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. In some regards, I think this may be a greater miracle than the first if you can grade degree of difficulty on, on miracles. The first miracle, just need a new lens in the eye, either a cataract gone, or this would be really impressive to reattach a, um, an optic nerve. That's, any of those are phenomenal. Okay. But in verse 25, we see a greater miracle instantly um, rearranging all the synapses in the brain just perfectly so that he could discern what his eyes were seeing. That that takes us years to learn, done in a moment so he could see them perfectly. And in fact, that's the, the whole emphasis here is that he could see everything clearly. He could perceive everything around and perceive shapes and space and colors and movements. His vision was 20-20. Everything was crisp And clear. He didn't need a year or two or five for his brain to learn all the optical impulses that were coming into his brain. No, he's able to perceive them instantaneously. The prophets of old had anticipated this event would come. Isaiah 35, verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind would be opened. Um, Liberals who try to explain away the Bible by natural reasons cannot explain away blind men seeing. This clearly was a work of of a great man, the God Man, Jesus Christ. And yet, as grace it was, he didn't try to draw attention to himself. It speaks of his humility here in verse 26. It speaks of his ministry. It speaks of his need to continue with his priority. He sent him to his home, saying, "Do not enter the village." Presumably, this man was not from Bethsaida, because he said, "Go home. Don't even go by way of the village. Just just go home, right? Don't make a big deal of this. Don't." Don't shout it out. We see that constantly from Jesus. He told the lepers, chapter 1, verse 44, not to say anything to anybody. He told the parents of the child raised from the dead to tell no one. He told the deaf man to tell no one that he could hear. And here the idea is the same. Go straight home. I don't need my name spread in Bethsaida. And, and you say, why is this? Right? It's confusing every time we come because we think of the name of Jesus. It's got to be spread. And look at all the things that He's doing. And yet, I think one of the things here is that his ministry wasn't primarily a healing ministry. In fact, when the crowds were too big, it was getting getting in the way of his true ministry, which was preaching. He said, let us go somewhere else to the crowds and towns nearby so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. Right? He came to preach. And Jesus was very willing to keep a low profile. Very willing just to serve people one-on-one. He wasn't looking for fanfare. He was just looking to Showed His disciples who He was. Now, certainly Jesus could have done this miracle all in one. You see, but the big question is, how? why? Why did He do it in two stages? Why did He first give sensation and perception? I mean, He's done two miracles before, right? He stopped the wind and calmed the sea. Stopping the wind so it doesn't blow. And then after that, maybe the greater miracle is to calm the sea so it's all hush and still. When Jesus healed the deaf man, two miracles, opening the ears and giving him speech, much like this miracle. In chapter 10, we're going to see Bartimaeus who received his sight. He did two stages at once. He gave both sensation and perception at the same time. So why not? Why here? Why here? That's a big question. It's a big question everybody asks. It's a big question should be asked. And the answer is, we don't know. However, I do think we do have some textual clues to understand why. Remember the, the context. Right? After Jesus fed the 44,000, what's happening? The disciples saw Jesus do this great miracle, and yet did they understand? They didn't. They saw, but they didn't see. Again, chapter 7, verse 17. Having eyes, you see. Verse 18. Having ears, you not hear. Right? They, they've seen this, and, and they, they've, they've got the sense of this, but they don't have a perception of what that really means. I think Jesus intentionally healed this man twice. Just to kind of give a visual illustration of what was taking place. Because when, Jesus, when Peter confesses who he is, I think Peter's got the exact same problem. He sees, but not clearly. So my, my third point this morning as so we get into Peter's confession of Christ is simply this, sensation. I'm using sensation a little bit differently, but here it is. I, I know, I see. I see. Again, we begin with a geographical reference. Verse 27, He went out along with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Takes us about 30 miles north of where they were in Bethsaida, Bethsaida to the city of Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is also a city along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, but so as not to uh, confuse it, it's called Caesarea Philippi where Herod Philip the Tetrarch reigned and ruled. So, they are different names. It is a Gentile land. It is a, a godless land. In fact, there is the, the Greek god Pan. Uh, Sometimes the city used to be called Pania. Panias, I think, is what it was. It's got some, some big caves that, that people would worship there. And I think that Jesus and His disciples in the pagan land found some privacy. Uh, I've heard some say this is probably a retreat of some type going up there, going away from the people. And it's here that Jesus reveals who He is. It says, On the way... He questioned His disciples, saying, Who do people say that I am? It's a good question. Who do people say that I am? Here's the answer. They told Him, verse 28, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. It is interesting here, the question that Jesus asked. You know, there are certain things that people will tell each other, but they won't tell a leader of an organization. I know that as a pastor. There are some things you'll, you'll talk about, but you won't talk to me about and uh, it's just, just natural. It's just how it works. Um, and so, likewise, here Jesus saying, "Okay, what what are the people talking about?" Because even the Pharisees sometimes they came to the disciples and says, "Why do you, why doesn't Jesus do this?" Rather than coming straight to Jesus, it's less threatening. It's easier. You might gain a hearing. And so, likewise, Jesus saying, "Okay, what's, what's what's the scuttlebutt about me among the hoi polloi? What what's going on here?" And some say John the Baptist. Now that's kind of ridiculous because John was Jesus' cousin. And they were, they were two different people, seen at the same place, same time, in his baptism. Uh, they knew each other well. But there were some similarities. They're both preachers. They both preach repentance. They both attracted large crowds. And some people, if they said John the Baptist, were obviously confused. Okay? So people are saying John the Baptist. Maybe they, they'd never seen John the Baptist. They only heard of him and heard of Jesus and thought maybe their ministry, just one and the same. But that wasn't right, of course. Others say Elijah. Now, Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so the Jews were always anticipating Elijah to come. In fact, even today, the Jews anticipate Elijah to come at the Seder meal right down to Passover. They always leave an empty spot for Elijah. And in fact, uh, today, Jews, in the midst of the, the Seder celebration, will, will open their door and will say, Elijah, are you coming? Right? And it's really fun to do that with kids when you open the door and says, no, he's not coming yet. So the, but, but they're anticipating that. And they're anticipating that Elijah would come and sit there at the table place that they have prepared for him. Um, and they were anticipating Elijah and they thought, Jesus, this, this is Elijah. This is who he was. But he wasn't Elijah. Jesus said John the Baptist was Elijah, but we'll get to that later in Mark chapter 9, verse 13. Others said, one of the prophets. Now, it had been 400 years since any of the prophets had come. And yet, with the coming of Jesus, there was an authority with which he spoke. I mean, that was the thing they marveled at after his teaching, right? They marveled that he was one speaking with authority, not as the scribes who always quote one another. They thought he was a prophet, but that still wasn't quite right either. But with these answers, you can see the overall perception of Jesus, that he was someone special. Even if they didn't quite understand who he was, they understood this is this is not your rank and file guy. He's... He's uh, rising up to be a different sort of man, especially with all the miracles he's doing, all the preaching he's doing, how he's astounding and, and confounding the religious leaders. So Jesus then turned the question away from the crowds. He said, okay, let's, let's get at what I really want to talk about. Let's talk about me. Who do you say that I am? Or, better yet, in the Greek, said in verse 29, she continued to question them, but you... Who do you say that I am? And I think this is what Jesus was getting at. He wasn't a crowd pleaser. He wasn't trying to say, oh, how's my popularity doing? How influential am I going to be? And he, wasn't that. he just wanted to say, okay, disciples, have you got it yet? It mattered what the disciples thought more than the people thought. And really, this is a time to reveal himself. He said, okay, I've been showing you who I am. Have you figured it out yet? And Peter answered verse 29 and said to him, You are the Christ. That's it. That's the answer to the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. He got it. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. Christ is the the Greek word um, which translates the Hebrew word, Messiah. Christ is the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one who so Jesus is. He is the long-awaited One. He's the anointed One of God. He's the One who's coming to redeem Israel. Peter got it right. Now, from Matthew's account, we understand that Peter didn't say these things because he himself had remarkable insight. Rather, it took a miracle. I think that's important. It was the special revelation of God. Matthew 16, 17, "...flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but My Father who is in heaven..." In other words, it's not that flesh and blood you got it. It's that My Father in Heaven revealed this to you so that you could see beyond the haze of the crowds who thought it was John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets, know that this clearly, this is the Christ. He's the One. He's the long-awaited One. And I just say this, no less a miracle took place when the blind man's eyes were opened than what took place here. And this was no less a miracle than when the, dead man, when the deaf man's ears were opened. And this is no less a miracle than when Jesus fed the five thousand or the four thousand or healed the man with the withered hand or many of the other miracles we've seen in the Gospel of Mark. This is a miracle. And let me just say this, church family, it is no less a miracle when anyone's eyes are open to believe in Jesus the Messiah. It's a divine work that God does in our hearts. He he changes our hearts so to see him. That's the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration means we've been born again. We've been changed. At one time we were a natural man is what First Corinthians 2 speaks about. But then God changes, He works on us, and He does a miracle in our lives, so that then we are, are changed in different and now we are alive to spiritual things. Where once we are dead in our sin, right, Ephesians 2 verse 5, it's God who makes us alive. But once we're blinded, now we see. He changes us and we see Him. And that's exactly what happened with Peter. Is that God revealed this to Peter. Showing him the truth of who Jesus was. And then, amazingly, right? Verse 30, here comes this thing again, right? He warned them to tell no one about Him. They say, say, why is that? Why not? He's the Christ. Why not, Peter, why don't you just go and spread it abroad? Tell everyone that Jesus is the Christ. Well, I think Peter had a few things to learn. Is, I think, some of the issue. And I, I don't think that he was ready to tell the world about Jesus yet. The day would come, you can read about that in the book of Acts, but it wasn't now because, my final point is, he had sensation, but he had no perception. He saw in some sense, but he didn't see. He, he understood, but he didn't understand. He looked at Jesus and saw him as a tree walking around, if you will. Didn't see him quite, quite clearly. And what he needed was a, another miracle to take place. And that miracle, uh, Jesus doesn't do instantaneously. He could have. He could have said, okay, Jesus, okay, Peter, you're not quite there. You've got the sensation right, but, but you don't have the perception. Let me, boom, give me the perception. He could have done that. But he didn't. He let it linger a bit. And I'm not sure why. I think it's so she could teach him about himself to show what he really is. And we're going to see in verses 31 to 33, Peter's lack of understanding. Verse 31, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, this is the glory of the Gospel, right? Jesus Christ came and He suffered. He suffered ridicule at the hand of the Pharisees. He suffered injustice at the hand of the chief priests. He suffered physically at the hand of the Romans. Was rejected by those who should have embraced Him. He came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And those He came to save are the very ones who killed Him. They turned their backs on Him. They hated Him. They spit upon Him. They mocked Him. They cursed Him. And yet, Jesus... Taking all the reproaches, didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him with judges righteously. First Peter 2.24 That's not all the story though. It continues on right here at the end of verse 31. I don't think the disciples heard this. I think the disciples only heard, Teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the chief priests, scribes, and be killed. The last part's important because the last part gives us hope. It says that three days later, Jesus would rise from the dead, and rise He did, and He conquered death, and He conquered sin, and the glories of the gospel is that we need merely to believe in Him, and we likewise will conquer sin and death. We read in verse 32 that He was stating the matter plainly. Peter understood what he said, okay? Okay? The senses were coming in. I mean, that's why there's sensation there. He, he clearly saw, he clearly heard, he clearly understood in some regard, and yet he clearly didn't see. He didn't understand. He didn't hear. And these are these two things going on here. And as Jesus was stating the matter plainly, and as they were clearly understanding that he's going to go, and they're going to reject him, and he's going to kill him, and he's going to rise again, they understood what Jesus was saying, but they, they didn't. That, that's not right. In fact, so strongly, did Peter think this wasn't right, that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him? He so, said, Jesus, hey, you got a minute, Jesus? <laughs> what, come on. She took him aside and began to rebuke him. Just like Jesus rebuked the demonic spirits, so likewise Peter rebukes Jesus. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus. The only way you can get to the point that you rebuke Jesus is if you have blindness that's so great. And that's what took place here. Here's what's here's going on. Peter had a different understanding of Messiah than the understanding of Messiah that Jesus had. He, he, he was believing one thing, and Jesus said, No, you don't perceive what the thing is that you really need to believe. I mean, you, you can sense what I'm saying, but you're not, you're not really grasping that because you've got, you got your mind fixed on here. You've got a, a preconceived theology notion about who the Messiah is and ought to be. And it was from Scripture. I mean, he pictured Messiah as his political ruler who's going to free Israel from the tyranny of the Romans. He pictured the Psalm 2 Messiah. The Messiah that would come installed as a king upon Zion who would come and break His enemies as a rod of iron. The Messiah who would come shattering enemies like earthenware. The Messiah who would come in His wrath and His fury. That's what Peter saw. Biblical, by the way. Psalm 2. Peter also saw the Psalm 110 Messiah. The Messiah who have all His enemies placed under His feet. The Messiah is going to sit up like this and put his feet out, and all of his enemies are right there. The Messiah is going to rule in the midst of his enemies. The, the Messiah is going to shatter the kings in the day of his wrath. The Messiah who will judge among the nations and fill the nations with corpses because of their wickedness. That's the Messiah that Peter saw. Peter saw the Isaiah 9 Messiah. The Messiah who would sit on the throne of David, and the Messiah who would place his government on his shoulders, and the Messiah who would have no end of the increase of His government. That's the Messiah that that Peter had. And as being scriptural, that is the Messianic Kingdom. That is what the Kingdom of God will look like fully established. There will be a day when the Kingdom of this world will become the Kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. In that day, Jesus will reign forever and ever and ever. And Peter had that part exactly right. But... But that wasn't for now. In order to get there, Jesus had to verse thirty-one. She said to the travelers on the road to Emmaus, "Wasn't it necessary for the Christ first to suffer, and then to enter into his glory?" Luke twenty-four twenty-six. Jesus then presented to Peter the Isaiah fifty-three Messiah, the suffering servant, as Phil read today for us. The one who was despised and forsaken of men. The one who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The one who was oppressed and afflicted. The one who was pierced through for our transgressions. The one who was crushed for our iniquities. The one who was cut off out of the land of the living. And his death was for our gain, is what Isaiah 53 says. He bore our griefs, He carried our sorrows. By his scourging we are healed. And our iniquity has fallen on him. And he has rendered himself as a guilt offering for our sin. That was the suffering Messiah. But... Peter couldn't see that. He just saw the victorious, conquering Messiah. But before he was victorious and conquering, first he had to suffer and atone for the sins of those who believe. And Peter didn't understand this. Rather, he thought that Jesus was going to redeem Israel politically. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to redeem Israel spiritually. I'm going to solve the sin problem first. And it didn't compute. It just... He sensed it, but he didn't perceive it. And so, Peter rebuked Jesus. And rather than remaining quiet, Jesus returned the fire. 33, but turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. Peter had no perception and so Jesus strongly rebuked Peter. That's what it says. In fact, not only was rebuked strong, it was also public. Uh, you notice Peter took Jesus aside in verse 32, doing the tactful thing, which is appropriate when you confront someone, you should confront them lovingly, softly, and private. But, but Peter didn't do that. He took him straight public. Jesus didn't do that. He took him straight public. Spoken in all the presence of all the disciples because what he said was so bad, he needed to set the record straight. Jesus wanted every single one of his disciples to know that Peter's ways are not God's ways. Rather, Peter's ways were, catch this, of the devil. How quickly things change. Is this amazing? At one moment, Peter was speaking the revelation of God himself. And the next moment, Peter was the mouthpiece of Satan. Why Jesus warned them to tell no one about Him. Verse 30. Because they were so muddled in their understanding about Him, they'd be preaching the plan of Satan rather than the plan of God. The plan of God is simple. Jesus came to suffer and die and rise from the dead. In fact, it was simple, but they didn't understand it. And so Jesus said, okay... Let me tell you, let me teach you class. He started here in verse 31. let we'll turn over to chapter 9 and look at verse 31. He was teaching His disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He has been killed, He will rise three days later. Same exact thing almost. Maybe the elements, the words aren't exactly. It's not like a a memory verse you can quote verbatim, but the idea is the same. He's going to go, as it says here, uh, into Jerusalem. He doesn't say that, but He's going to go and be delivered to the hands of men. Right? The chief priests, and the scribes, they're going to kill Him. He's going to rise three days later. There's a simple message that bears repeating, but yet still, seeing, they did not see because it says in verse 32, they did not understand this statement and they were afraid of Him. So Jesus repeats again. Turn over to chapter 10. Look at verse 32. It's 8.31, 9.31, 10.32. Just right here. The third time. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. Those who followed were fearful because they saw, they understood, right? Amazed that Jesus was walking up to His death so boldly and leading everybody and yet fearful because they didn't want this to happen. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him and three days later he will rise again. Same elements, right? Going to Jerusalem, being rejected, right? Mocked and scourged and hated, condemned to death and then they're going to condemned, even here's more detail, hand it over to the Gentiles, the Romans are going to kill them, but after three days, they're going to rise again from the dead. I mean, the same thing again and again. You think they understood it? They didn't understand. They didn't understand. In fact, I think they didn't understand because you see that James and John come asking for the, the great seats of the kingdom on the right and left hand of Jesus. In verse 37, Grant that we may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. <laughs> Jesus says, "Okay, you want to sit there? It's not mine to give. First of all, but if you want to get there, you you need to suffer first. You ready to suffer?" They said, "Yeah, I'm ready to suffer." I said, "Okay, you'll suffer, but you still don't understand. It's the suffering first, and then comes glory later. It's like they didn't understand. I, one of my my most favorite um, how I say." Sesame Street videos. Okay, kids, this is your favorite video. This is Grover. You remember Grover? And uh, he's got this little sketch that I played for my kids sometimes. It's called Around, 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 Over, Under, Through, Near and Far. Do you guys know that one? He goes uh, like around, around. He's running around the table, around the table, around, 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 around. He goes over, and he goes under the table, and then he goes through. And then he says near... And then he runs way back there. I and mean, this is only like 15 feet, but he runs way back there. He says, far. And then he runs up and he says, near. And then he runs back and says, far. And then he runs up and he says, near. And then what he says is, do you understand? And you don't understand. Okay, let me do it again. And he goes around, 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 over, under, through. And he says, near. And then he runs, and runs, <laughs> Far, <laughs> near, <laughs> far, <laughs> and he's panting like this, he goes, do you understand, do you understand, you don't understand. And so he goes through the thing again and again, and finally the last thing, do you understand, and, and then he falls over and he thinks but just trying to teach this concept about around and over and under and through and near and far and they don't understand. And now Jesus was infinitely more patient than Grover was, alright? But still the same concept. Just again and again, very simply, very plainly, I'm going to Jerusalem... And when I get there, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests are going to reject me and they're going to deliver me to the Gentiles. They're going to mock me and scourge me and I'm going to die this painful, awful death. But after three days, I'm going to rise again. And, and there's something about it that needs to hear that gospel story again and again and again and again. That's what, what Paul said in First Corinthians chapter 15, right? I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received. And he has no problem telling them again that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He's buried. He buried, they raised again according to the scriptures, and he appeared then to many people after he was raised from the dead. And he said, "I'm going to show it to you again and again because that's the gospel by which we stand." It's a simple message about Christ crucified. That's First Corinthians chapter one. We preach Christ crucified. It's the message we need to hear again and again. Jesus then puts some interpretation on it in verse 45. Up until this point, these are just raw facts. I'm just going to go up, they're going to kill me, I'm going to die. Now he begins, though, in verse forty five, to put a little spin of an interpretation on it, which the gospel writers I'm sorry, the the epistles are all about. they interpret what happened at the the death of Christ for us. Jesus mostly was, just this is going to happen, but we know later that this is why it happened, and this is the implications of what happened, and we believe in him, and this is what happens. He says, verse 45, this is perhaps the, the key theme book of the verse of Mark. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So I've sought to summarize all of Mark. Here it is, right? It's the servant who saves. He, he didn't come to be served, rather He came to serve. He, he came to be the servant. And what does a servant do? He gives his life a ransom for many. That is, He, he saves people. He, he gives His life in payment for our sins. He, he buys us and He redeems us by His death upon the cross because God taught in the Old Testament that when you sin, you need a sacrifice. And so Jesus became that sacrifice to purchase and atone for our sins. That's what He's saying here. It's the reality of the Gospel. That's why we gather here Sunday morning. That's why we love to be with God's people. It's because we can hear this message of the Gospel that delights in us. That, that delights our hearts. Jesus Christ came to die. He ransomed for our sins. And my question to you, just by, by way of application right here at the end, is do you understand this? Do you believe this? Uh, or, or seeing do you not see? Or hearing do you not hear? Or sensing do you not perceive? And I just isn't this the struggle of us all? To fully embrace that which we confess. To, to, to fully understand and grasp the, the glories of the, the things we read in the Bible. I mean, we have sensation, but we lack perception. I, I think in some ways it's because, as Paul said in First Corinthians thirteen twelve, we see through a veil dimly. We don't know everything what we shall be, but, but through this veil we, we do see dimly and there are some dim realities But know that that's the way that God has created the world. He's created the world in such a way that we need to live by faith. We don't live by sight. God hasn't shown for us everything right there for us. He's intentionally, like the disciples, kept things veiled so that we trust Him and believe in Him. And we'll see Peter even going through this progression here of beginning to understand a little bit, beginning to understand a little bit, beginning to understand a little bit, but even... In Mark chapter 15, right? Jesus is being delivered up and there, the, the trial is there and Peter's, Peter's out warming himself by the fire. And what does he do? He denies Christ three times. He, he's not fully grasped it. And when does he grasp it? Only after the resurrection and after spending 40 days with Jesus, seeing Jesus ascend to heaven. Then it's like he got it. But how did he get it? because of the supernatural work of the Spirit of God coming on Pentecost that stirred his heart then to be bold to preach to so many people and eventually to die for the faith and eventually then to give his life, as we will look at next week, verses 34 through 38. Denying himself, taking up his cross and following Christ, losing his life here on earth. He might save it and gain it. now I didn't want to rush through verses 34 through 38 this week lest I diminish them. They're so rich. They, they call us so high. We're just going to spend next week focusing on these, these five verses here. But don't you feel like the, the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief? Chapter 9, verse 24. Yes, I believe, but God, help my unbelief. That's where all of us are. That is the story from, from this point on in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to see these knucklehead uh, disciples not quite understanding it, not quite catching it, and longing to but not quite being there, seeing and not seeing. And I just know we, if we're going to see, we just need to continue to pray that God would help us to see and perceive. So let's pray that God would do that work in our hearts. Father, the the miracle of regeneration is a, a miracle and a gift of You. And so is the miracle of perception understanding as the psalm writer says, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from Your law. And I pray, O Lord, that would be our heart as well, that we would realize that we need You to open our eyes so we might see the glories, all the glories of the Gospel. That we might live differently, that we might fully believe what we profess to believe. So God, I pray that You would do that work in us and we might grow day by day in our ever-increasing understanding about how great Jesus Christ is. Just we're going to sing here in a moment how much better He is than everything. He's better than the, the angels. He's better than the priests. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Aaron. He's better than the high priest. He's better than Abraham. He's better than Melchizedek. He brings in a better covenant enacted on better promises that bring us into glory through the blood of the eternal covenant. And God, I pray that we would see how much better Jesus is that we might press on in this life so as to love Him and serve Him. But we need Your help. Just as as You healed the blind man, the blind man did nothing. But You spit on his eyes and You placed Your hands on his eyes and You healed him. So God, we need your, Your help in these regards. God, so as to lose our life on earth We might gain it in glory. So strengthen us this day to be encouraged with those things. In Jesus' name, amen.